Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and for today's episode, we will be addressing Women, Life, Freedom in Iran. This episode will be divided in two parts. The first part will be an explainer of the massive protests taking place in Iran already a month after the killing of Masa Amini. And the second part of this episode will be a commentary on the different power dynamics we are seeing taking place in this country through feminist IR and human rights perspectives. Due to the sensitive and complex nature of this historic protest and the different social, political and religious dimensions, I want to make a disclaimer that most of the data and sources shared here come from Western international media outlets and think tanks. We recognize and acknowledge certain biases and controversies on the information available in this hemisphere. Therefore, we strongly encourage you to seek and learn directly from Iranian women's voices and experiences on the ground, as well as do your own research on the context and different viewpoints on this matter. We will list below on the description box of this episode a list of Iranian activists and organizations' accounts and websites covering and analyzing the Iranian protests for more information. If you know others we should follow, you can share with us via Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at womenhood underscore IR. As always, in the description box, you will also find a list of recommended readings, analyses, and related episodes connected to today's topic. Without further ado, let's begin with part one. How the massive protests began. On September 13, 2022, Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman, was arrested and detained by the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. She was taken into custody, where reportedly she was beaten so many times on her head that she fell into a coma, dying two days later on September 16, 2022. Iranian authorities first reported that she died because of a heart attack. However, images circulating of Amini in a state of coma and the denial of family members saying that she had any heart problems led to a lot of controversies and social unrest. Her father said that she had bruises on her legs and he holds the police responsible for her death. On September 16, Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi demanded an investigation, but protests began taking place on social media and on the streets. From September 17, 2022 up to this date, November 8, protests have continued not only in Tehran and several cities across Iran, but also worldwide summing up to 80 cities where demonstrations from women's rights and human rights movements have taken place in solidarity with Iranian women and girls and with the global action call of Women Life Freedom. The website womenlifefreedom.today explains, and I open quote, Why now? For decades, gender inequality and discrimination against women have been legally enshrined in Iran. 
Under Iran's Islamic Penal Code, Iranian women's rights are severely restricted, a form of gender apartheid. Women must comply with the Islamic Republic's mandatory hijab laws from the onset of puberty, and they are unequal in matters of marriage, divorce, custody, inheritance, and more. In the fall of 2022, hundreds of protesters, including dozens of children, have been killed by Iranian authorities. These nationwide protests were triggered by the tragic death of 22-year-old Masajina Amini, who died in police custody after being arrested by Iran's morality police for failing to properly cover her hair. As a global collective of women and allies, we demand action. Closing quote. The Women Life Freedom website campaign explains that, that it is a coalition of Iranian women leaders from political experts, activists, scholars, lawyers, and artists, some of whom need to maintain anonymity for safety reasons. Vital Voices, as well as Four Freedoms, are part of this effort. And one of the international demands that they are making, specifically in this campaign, listed down below in the description box of this episode for more information, is the reconsideration of Iran as part of the Commission for the Status of Women. In March 2022, the Islamic Republic of Iran began a four-year term as part of the UN's top women's rights body. Given that Iran ranks 143 among 146 countries in the Global Gender Gap Index, this election for Iran in a leadership role at this UN body should never have happened and a removal should be taken in consideration once again according to this coalition. How the government has responded to the growing social unrest. According to Javaid Rahman, Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Islamic Republic of Iran, in late October, and I open quote, Over the past six weeks, thousands of men, women, and children, by some accounts over 14,000 persons, have been arrested, which includes human rights defenders, students, lawyers, journalists, and civil society activists. Closing quote. The violent response of security forces has led to the reported killing of at least 277 people, according to Remen's address to the UN Security Council, listed below in the description box. Iranian authorities have also restricted access to internet connectivity, telecommunications, and social media platforms such as Instagram and WhatsApp efforts seeking to suppress the social unrest and the calls for protest. According to the Monitoring of Human Rights Watch organization, on October 29, Iran's intelligence ministry and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps intelligence organization accused two detained women journalists of participating in a training course from U.S. intelligence-backed entities, the journalists Nilufar Ameri and Elahe Mohammadi had reported on the death of Masa Amini in morality police custody, which sparked widespread protests. The authorities have not yet published any evidence to support this allegation. 
On October 31, 2022, the head of Tehran's province judiciary said that it had issued around a thousand indictments against those arrested related to protests. This past November 6, Iranian lawmakers have urged the judiciary to deal decisively with perpetrators of unrest as the Islamic Republic struggles to suppress the widespread anti-government demonstrations. 227 lawmakers from Iran's 290 parliament have said in a statement that the judiciary needs to deal decisively with the perpetrators of these crimes and with all those who assisted in the crimes and provoked rioters. It is important to note that the crimes alleged by the Iranian lawmakers are connected to the social unrest and what is considered to be anti-government demonstrations and calls for toppling the Iranian regime. Is the Iranian regime repressive and oppressive towards women? At this point, it is important to acknowledge the complex history of Iran. I will feature down below in the description box recommended timelines and documentaries to explore this further. But to sum it up, according to the 2021 Iran report by Amnesty International, Iranian women have faced several discriminatory religious, political, and economic laws in the past 40 years after the 1979 Iranian Revolution according to Amnesty International, and I open quote, Women face discrimination in law and practice, including in relation to marriage, divorce, employment, inheritance, and political office. Discriminatory compulsory veiling laws led to daily harassment, arbitrary detention, torture, and other ill treatment and denial of access to education, employment, and public spaces. At least six women's rights defenders remained in prison for campaigning against compulsory veiling. Parliament further undermined the right to sexual and reproductive health by adopting the bill Youthful Population and Protection of the Family in November, which, among other things, bans state-funded facilities from providing birth control free of charge, requires pharmacies to sell contraception only with a prescription, bans vasectomy and tubectomy except when pregnancy will endanger a woman's life, or lead to serious physical harm or unbearable hardship during pregnancy or after labor, and suppresses access to prenatal screening tests. The Parliamentary Social Commission approved the long-standing bill defending dignity and protecting women against violence in July after regressive amendments by the judiciary. The bill, which awaited final approval, contains welcome provisions including the establishment of special police units, safe houses, and national working group to devise strategies to tackle violence against women and girls. However, it fails to define domestic violence as a separate offense, criminalize marital rape and child marriage, or ensure who murdered their wives and daughters 
face proportionate punishments. In cases of domestic violence, the bill prioritizes reconciliation over accountability. The legal age of marriage for girls stayed at 13, and fathers could obtain judicial permission for their daughters to be married at a younger age. According to official figures, between March 2020 and March 2021, the marriages of 31,379 girls aged between 10 and 14 were registered, representing a 10.5% increase over the previous year. Closing quote. I invite you to check the full document of Amnesty International to learn more. Are these massive protests very different from previous ones? Yes. This is the first time in Iran that protests have been led by women and supported by men. Other recent protests in Iran took place in 2009, 2017, and 2019, but they mostly focus on working class issues. However, this is the first time where people among different sections of society and age group have joined together to demand change, not only in terms of justice for Amini, and the reformation of policies for women and girls' rights, but also on the nature and governing rule of the state in place. Okay, we are going to leave it here for the first part. I invite you once again to check all the recommended readings, the timelines, the history, um, documentaries that we are going to feature down below in the description box. And we are going to pass now to the second part of today's episode, which is the commentary. The second part of this episode is connected to the work that we are doing in the podcast on a feminist IR analysis, as well as a human rights perspectives on this, on this case study. But before we start, I want to share with you two announcements. The first one is that we have featured in the podcast an incredible interview that is related to this topic with Itzel Pamela Perez Gomez, Middle East Studies Professor at University of Anahuac Mayab in Mexico. In this interview, we have talked about different gender issues in the Middle East, as well as the Western fixation on the veil. I invite you to check it out. And also, as we are preparing for November 25th, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, if you're interested in digging deeper on the causes and solutions of violence against women, we have an upcoming workshop that is going to be incredible, a two-hour live presentation taking place on November 22nd, as well as a live Q&A on November 26th. So if you're an advocate, an activist, a student, a professor, a researcher, an entrepreneur working to eliminate gender-based violence or violence against women, I invite you to join. This workshop is definitely for you. I'm going to list down below the link to register today. Okay, there are three topics that I want to share with you in this section. The first one has to do with the history of Iran. There's an incredible article by Shadi Amid called The Reason Iran Turned Out to Be So Repressive. It was published in the Atlantic magazine and it features a full explanation on 
1979 revolution and why it was so important and how and why the Ayatollah Khomeini regime was so powerful. I'm going to quote here two paragraphs that for the purposes of this podcast are connected to perhaps what we are seeing today. According to Amid, and I open quote, 43 years after its founding, the Islamic Republic sputters along as yet another repressive sclerotic regime. What makes the Iranian system different, exceptional even, is the arc of its tragedy and the unusual role played by an entirely novel theological doctrine. In the beginning, the Islamic Revolution was popular, otherwise it wouldn't have succeeded. The aggressive secularization under the Shah in the 1960s and 70s had been discredited, and millions of Iranians turned to Islamic symbols, concepts, and leaders for inspiration. If the Shah's westernization project was the problem, then perhaps Islam could be the solution. And yet, that solution took a peculiar form, one that foreordained today's discontent. Iran's new rulers created a system far more intrusive than clerics of previous centuries could have ever imagined. If one could sum up the original intent of Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini revolution, it was quite simply to preserve Islam. In his most influential treatise, Islamic Government, published in the 1970, Khomeini wrote, the preservation of Islam is even more important than prayer. An odd, if maddenly vague claim. In practice, however, this meant something quite specific. For Khomeini, Islam could be preserved only through Islamic government, and this, in turn, was possible only if jurists, that is, clerics specializing in Islamic jurisprudence, led the government as guardians of Islam. Closing quote. Further down in the article, Amiri explains how the government related to the modern state structure. Opening quote. Khomeini's radicalism was real and deeply felt. His grievances were legitimate, but the totalizing nature of the dictatorship to come was not predestined. Another ingredient was necessary. That something else was the modern state, in all its sprawling, overbearing glory. Until the 20th century, a state simply could not be authoritarian in the fullest sense of the world. Their bureaucratic, technological, and surveillance capacity was limited. Even under despots, ordinary people could still live relatively free lives because the state could only extend its tentacles to control so far. The introduction of the nation-state removed any such constraints. Leaders could seek dominion not just over government, but over society too. Not only did they want to change your behavior, they wanted to transform the way you perceive the world. If the Shah's strong state was what threatened Islam, a strong state, and perhaps even a stronger one, would be required to protect it from its enemies at home and from those abroad as well." Closing quote. I find this article very intriguing because from afar, from abroad, looking at Iran as a case study, most foreign policy experts and international media analysis in the Western Hemisphere 
address Iranians' theocracy either through condemning or rationalizing lenses. But little attention is paid to how intertwined is the regime of the Ayatollah and the deep state that few talk about to the conception of the modern state and the international standards to be perceived as one. Why I bring this to the table? Why is this important? It is important because the social unrest, the massive social unrest that we are seeing in Iran through photos, images, videos that we have access to are a result of years, decades of repression and the resentment fell through society, regardless of age, gender, class, or ethnicity, is at this point undeniable. These six weeks have shown that, you know, justice for Amini is important, but the reforming of policies goes beyond the treatment of one or hundreds of detainees and women and girls. It brings to the attention that the social order needs to change. The regime in place is detached or alienated from the people's perception of needs and wants at this point in time. Which brings into consideration whether a state in this shape can be subjected to change or is society changing faster than the state is able to adapt there are many systemic wounds in iran that need to be healed from the shah dictatorship to the ayatollah theocratic dictatorship quote unquote who can lead that healing And is this the time for a second revolution to take place? Will a second revolution offer healing? Or will it make promises just as the first one did? Is a religious state the answer to a grieving society? Can it offer hope, faith, progress, safety, security? What are our views of the state? What are we seeking the state to give to us? If the modern state structure's purpose is control and social order. What happens if we mix the modern state structure with religion? Be it whatever type of religion, not only Islam, because in the Western Hemisphere, looking at other dynamics as well. I find it interesting throughout the conversations on social media, as well as in YouTube, you know, the, the call for 
nonviolent demonstrations, the call for pacific demonstrations against the government, and how what began as a reform of policies is now a call to topple the regime. And there was an ever-present line of narratives that repeated over and over that the more the government continues suppressing people's emotions, demands, lives, because they're stripping and killing people in these efforts to stop the social unrest, can actually lead to more violence. How long can you use those tactics until they don't work anymore? What's the toll? What's the sacrifice of leading a country, a modern state, or a theocratic one that way? There was a talk about multiple grievances that the Iranian society at home and abroad are feeling at this point. The loss of freedoms, the feeling of being unheard or suppressed or disrespected in many ways, the feeling and idea that the government doesn't care at all about its people or its women, and a conversation and a growing one on the structure of the state and whether it is pursuing a gender apartheid. What is gender apartheid? According to the United Nations Economic and Social Commission website, gender apartheid definition in English is, open quote, the term gender apartheid or called sexual apartheid or sex apartheid refers to the economic and social sexual discrimination against individuals because of their gender or sex. It is a system enforced by using either physical or legal practices to relegate individuals to subordinate positions. Feminist psychologist Phyllis Schessler defines the phenomenon as practices which condemn girls and women to a separate and subordinate subexistence and which turn boys and men into permanent guardians of their female relatives' chastity. Instances of gender apartheid lead not only to the social and economic disempowerment of individuals, but can also result in severe physical harm. Closing quote. I tried to look for more information on whether gender apartheid was taking place in uh, the 1979 state structure of Iran, but there was few articles that I could find in the English language. I'm going to list them down below. Um, the use of gender apartheid as a term for the case of Iran, I imagine it is very controversial one and very sensitive. And that's perhaps why many media outlets uh, reframe of using it. However, Iranian female activists, advocates, and feminist scholars have said that that is what I invite you to check their interviews and learn more directly from their experiences on this matter. 
I'm not an expert on gender apartheid and this is a very newly topic for me. But if there is something that I want to bring to consideration in this episode is, is the following question. Can a gender apartheid state offer respect and protection of women's lives, rights, and freedoms? If so, how? If not, why? I don't know and I cannot make an assumption up to this point if whether a gender apartheid structure is taking place in Iran. But the possibility that this type of vision is pursued systematically throughout decades is very daunting. International institutions, international media outlets have talked very briefly about the possibility of a gender apartheid taking place. And I imagine how difficult it is for them if, you know, it takes forever (laughs) to assign the word genocide or the term ethnic cleansing or, you know, even the acknowledgement of a racial apartheid in South Africa took decades to acknowledge at the international level. I cannot imagine whether, you know, this is part of an agenda, this is part of a pressure, you know, the the harsher the term, the more international, uh, the more the international community will pay attention. I mean, I don't know. I do know that there's agendas taking place from different actors and, you know, something we read on the news, some a lot of other things happening behind the scenes and closed doors. That's why it is so important to talk with women on the ground, to talk with Iranian women and their experiences directly. And if you're one of them and you're listening to this podcast and are interested in sharing your experience and sharing your knowledge, please do let us know because you know, I understand how sensitive is this issue right now and how difficult it is to speak up because of all the reprisals. I have followed on social media other Iranian women living abroad in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, as well as in Latin America, and how they are working extensively to continue creating awareness about what's happening in Iran and asking the international community to do something. But there are many power dynamics that we know of, some of them in the IR field and so, uh, and so many others behind closed doors that we may not know about that can slow down the international response. One of them, very publicly, the nuclear deal. Iran's stance on the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the US, Europe, influence political, social, economic, as well as religious perspectives on the Middle East and what Iran should do or should not do and how governments in the Middle East should treat their people. 
coming from the Western Hemisphere, it is perhaps easy to make judgments based on based on the UN Charter for Human Rights. That's a safe quote-unquote bet. But once again, there's a possibility of falling into a simplistic way of solving a complex social, political, and religious scenario. Lastly, the last topic that I want to bring here, the role of women the role of women and girls and the support that they're receiving by men and the support that the society as a whole is showing in these past few weeks. We saw in 2010 how the self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia was the spark of a social movement that spanned across other Arab countries the movement called the Arab Spring. Kanamini's tragedy sparked a long-lasting movement for social, political change that is created by and welcomed by women and girls in Iran. There's a high possibility we are seeing a huge amount of demonstrations of Iranian women and girls at schools, at universities, at job centers, at streets, at family and community centers, at home and abroad, addressing these calls for change, not backing down. From other countries, we can see that and show our solidarity to them. We are also seeing the price some of them are paying is very high and it shouldn't be that way. Can the international community provide safety, provide protection of their human rights when a state structure is, is crafted in a way that the international intervention is very limited. I'm not so sure. And it can definitely lead to a conversation of whether these international standards mechanisms in place for protection of human rights and women's rights actually matter. Actually you know, are important or relevant or legitimate. If the party that is doing the repression, if the party that is doing the oppression and using violence, state violence, justifies it and doesn't seek anyone's permission to continue doing so. I'm going to leave it here. 
This is a very heavy topic of conversation and I look forward to listening to your feedback, reading your views on social media. We're on Instagram, on Twitter and LinkedIn at womenhood underscore IR. I invite you to check all the readings and strongly encourage you to do your own research to seek and speak with, if possible, with Iranian women to learn more about their experiences and their views about what's going on in their own country and, you know, seek ways to support. I'm also going to list down below um, several ways to support Iranian women and girls if you're interested. Invite you once again to check our upcoming workshop on violence against women and peace on November 22nd and join our Patreon community to be part of the discussions. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.